Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Some of you might know that there is a new movie out that's set in the land of Oz, as in The Wizard of Oz. And the movie is called Oz the Great and Powerful. Perhaps some of you have seen this movie already. I have not yet seen it, uh, but I did see the original Wizard of Oz, and I think the first time I saw it, I was around five years old. And as a matter of fact, I recall that it was a rather traumatic experience for me at five years old, because I found that Wicked Witch to be one of the scariest creatures I'd ever seen, ranking right up there with that that long-nosed kidnapper from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Has anybody ever seen that? That, They both freak me out a lot. And I remember being really unnerved as a kid, watching that scene where the Wicked Witch has Dorothy locked away in that room, and she takes this big hourglass, and it's actually filled with red sand, and she takes it and she turns it over. Uh, This is what it looks like in in the film. She turns it over, and this is what she says to Dorothy. I quote from the movie. That's how much longer you've got to be alive. And it isn't very long, my pretty. It isn't very long. And that, I mean, that rattled me. I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, it was a really tense moment for me as a five-year-old. But of course, you know the story. Her friends come. They take an axe to the door. They break it down. They rescue Dorothy. Then, of course, you know eventually that the Wicked Witch dies. Sorry, I didn't give you a spoiler alert there. I'm just assuming that you know how the Wicked uh, or the Wizard of Oz goes. But earlier in the, uh, in the movie, you remember the, the Wicked Witch of the East dies as well. And that's what makes her so angry at Dorothy. And do you remember what happens when that witch dies? You might remember the scene that looks like this, where they're all dancing, and they sing a song when she dies, a victory song of sorts. Perhaps you remember the scene, perhaps you remember the song. It goes like this, ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch old witch, the wicked witch, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Wake up, sleepyhead, rub your eyes, get out of bed, wake up, the wicked witch is dead. She's gone to where the goblins go, below, below, below. And then some coroner eventually comes out, and he says, as coroner, I must aver, I thoroughly examined her, and she is not only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead. And then, then the mayor finally comes out and ends this, this whole thing with this proclamation. Yes, let the joyous news be spread. The wicked old witch, at last, is dead. Did you know that there are victory songs kind of like this in the Bible? Celebrating victory and the overthrow of enemies with song. Uh, We read it in the Exodus account, actually. After the people cross over the Red Sea and the Egyptians are drowned there, remember what the Israelites do? They sing a song. We read a victory song in Revelation chapter 18 at the defeat of Babylon. And we read a victory song in 1 Corinthians 15. A song celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if you think about it, the songs that we're singing this morning are victory songs. They're songs about our victory over the grave and celebrating the death of death in the resurrection of Jesus. So, I mean, if you're a Christian this morning, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 are the words of your song. That's your victory song that you can sing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In that chapter, Paul goes on for 58 verses um, talking about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the body to come. It's the longest treatment of the topic in Scripture. 
And we're going to look at that passage this morning, but instead of looking at the whole chapter, we're going to just look at the end of that chapter, beginning in verse 50. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, we will begin our reading in verse 50 and conclude at the end of the chapter, which is verse 58. So we're just going to read that section of the chapter this morning. So as you find 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50, please stand now for the reading of God's Word. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading of your word and bless now the preaching of your word, that it might bear fruit for your glory, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, as I said, Paul goes on for 58 verses talking about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of the body, uh, but he doesn't answer all of our questions that we might have about the resurrection of the body in the age to come. But he does make it very clear in these closing verses that Christ's Easter resurrection gives us our victory song over death. That much is clear, that Christ's Easter resurrection gives us our victory song over death. So I want us to consider three things connected to this passage this morning. First, I want us to consider Easter's predicament, and then I want to talk about Easter's promise And then I want to talk about Easter's power. So first, Easter's predicament, and then promise, and then power. Well, Paul describes the predicament this way in verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You got that? Why does Paul say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, isn't one of the distinctive features of the Christian faith the resurrection of the body? The resurrection of these bodies... I mean, after all, the Christian hope is not that the soul survives death in some kind of state of conscious existence. It's more than that. The Christian hope is that these bodies will be raised from the grave when Jesus comes again. So why does Paul say flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Well, he certainly is not denying the reality of the bodily resurrection after he's been arguing for it for the entire chapter. Rather, what Paul means by the phrase flesh and blood here is referring to our present embodied state. In other words, our bodily existence lived out under the curse. 
That's what he means by flesh and blood. In fact, he describes this state of existence with two primary terms, perishable and mortal. Those are the the terms he uses to describe life in the body and indeed our bodies themselves. Uh, the, The word perishable simply means that our bodies decay and they wear down. These bodies in this existence break down wear down, decay, deteriorate. And isn't that an apt description of these bodies, of life in this bodily existence? I mean, something's wrong with our bodies. They, they do break down. They do deteriorate as if we have some kind of slow-acting poison that's slowly taking effect as it courses through our veins. I mean, this, this is the future in front of all of us if we remain alive in these bodies. Your strength and your coordination will diminish. Hips and knees will break and need to be replaced. Your eyesight will dim. Your heart won't keep time the way it's supposed to. So that's what, that's what pacemakers are for. Your arteries get clogged. Your heart doesn't contract with enough strength to pump the blood through your body. And so you have congestive heart disease, congestive heart failure in some cases. And it gets down to the cellular level. Your cells become cancerous. Your minds are no longer able to focus and concentrate the way they once were. And your memories fade, sometimes severely, as in the case of Alzheimer's disease. And if you live long enough, you'll lose control of your bodily functions. And so the end is very much like the way we all began. You end up in diapers. That's, that's the future that faces all of us if we stay alive in these bodies. We're perishable. And we can try to deny that. And we, we can try to, try to slow down the process. And there are things you can do to slow down the process. But you can't stop the process. It just keeps moving forward. And it's, it's probably easier to deny the reality of this perishableness when we're younger. Um, I, I remember as a kid, I'd, I'd watch my stepfather get up from a chair, and I'd think, why does it take him like 10 seconds to straighten his back up? I never understood that. That's me now. That, that, I understand a little bit better now. So it might be easier to, not, to deny when you're younger, but even when you're younger, you see it. You're around people where this perishing quality is evident. And if you're not, just spend 15 minutes in an assisted living facility. Just walk around there for 15 minutes. And there's no denying that what Paul is saying is right. This is a description of our bodies. They're perishable. In fact, even the universe we live in is said to be winding down. It's not just our bodies, but the whole universe is winding down and perishing. It's a reality of the world in which we're all living. Or maybe we can say it better this way. This is the reality of the world in which we're all dying. And if that thought is not sobering enough, here's another one for you. You will never be younger than you are right now. Ever. You'll never be younger. Time just keeps marching on. You're going to age, period. And I'm, I'm more sympathetic the older I get. Like I said, I'm 43. And, and the older I get, the more sympathetic I get to Ponce de Leon. Remember who Ponce de Leon was? Explorer, early explorer, explored Florida. Remember what he was looking for? 
who's looking for a fountain of youth. Boy, wouldn't you love to find a fountain where your health and your vigor could be restored and maintained just by drinking it? Who in this room would not drink that water in a second to escape this perishing of our flesh and blood lived out under the curse? Would you not drink that? But, of course, we have to also grapple with the fact that we may not experience a great deal of this perishing kind of deterioration because you might actually die in the prime of your strength. You might die in the prime of youth because our bodies are not only perishable, they're mortal. It simply means they die. We live in bodies that die. And all kinds of things can kill your body. Fire can kill your body. Water can kill your body. Which is kind of ironic, right? Water can diminish the fire and both can kill you. Water can kill you by drowning. You can die by an accidental fall. It doesn't take that great of a height to do it. You can die from traffic accidents, plane crashes, all kinds of things. So much so that doesn't it feel like an hourglass has been turned over on all of us and the words of the wicked witch ring true. This is all the time you've got left to be alive. And it isn't very long, my pretty. It isn't very long. Can we not all relate to that? And, and so we drive by crowded parking lots at Meeks Mortuary just down the road. Or we can see a funeral motorcade with those purple flags on the cars. And the thought enters our mind. Maybe me next. Maybe me. And if not me, maybe someone I love. Just all around us. And because of this, it makes our lives feel like they're actually more marked by a string of songs of lament than characterized by a song of victory. And that this predicament seems irreversible as well. Right? It's like, it's like pouring too much water into a cake mix. You ever done that? There's no undoing it. It's like breaking an egg. You're not getting that back together. That's the mortality of our body. We we, we long for some kind of grand reversal. Isn't there a way to make the sand move back up into the hourglass? Is there something that can stop it, something that can undo it? I mean, I remember hearing about um, the fatalities out on 600 a couple weeks ago, most of you have heard about. I think about the loved ones that, that lost people in that accident. And, and, and I've been there. It's likely that you've been there. You just want to know, is there, isn't there something that can just undo this? You know, we need a Superman. We need a Superman. You remember the, the 80s Superman movie? Some of you may not remember. The Christopher Reeve, when Lois Lane died, Superman flies around the planet and reverses the, the motion. So he kind of goes back in time and reverses it. And don't you want to know, is there anybody that can do that? Is there anybody that can take us to living water? Well, you came to hear good news this morning, right? On Easter, you want to hear good news. Well, there there is good news, and it's this. There is a fountain of youth, but it's a person. There is living water. It's a person. There is a Superman who's broken in to the history of our world and he reverses the irreversible. 
Jesus has taken our songs of lament and given us a song of victory. He takes death's sad song and transforms it into our glad song. And really, this is what Easter's promise is about. So that's the second thing I want to consider with you this morning, Easter's promise. We have a victory song to replace our song of lament because Easter's promise is the bodily resurrection, the resurrection of the body. And these bodies will be transformed bodies. And Paul speaks of the reality of this transformation in verse 51. He says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. It's not a nursery slogan. It's about transformation, glorious transformation. And this is what Paul says about the nature of that transformation. The perishable will put on the imperishable, and the mortal will put on immortality. I mean, this could not be a more dramatic contrast of a transformation from being perishable and mortal to being imperishable and immortal. And the language that Paul uses here is the language of dressing up. It's the language of putting on clothes, right? You know how some occasions call for formal attire, like formal evening wear or a black tie event or a suit jacket? Well, it seems that what glory calls for, what the new heavens and the new earth call for, is formal eternity wear, which is the imperishable and immortality. Those are the clothes for glory. And of course, the immediate question I have in my mind is, where do I get these clothes? Don't you want these clothes? The immortal, the imperishable? Where do we get these clothes? Well, that's the good news of Easter as well. God provides these clothes freely for anyone who looks to Jesus in faith for salvation and finds their hope of victory in him. You see, Jesus has actually already put on these clothes. He's already robed himself in immortality and the imperishable on that first Easter morning. But more than that, he's also purchased those clothes for anyone who would look to him in faith. And you know what? If you're looking to him in faith, he's going to bring your clothes back with him. He's going to bring your clothes of the imperishable and immortality back with him. Here's how Paul describes that event when Jesus comes again. Those who have already fallen asleep, he says in this passage, which refers to those who have already died, when Jesus comes back, they will be raised up from their graves, from their tombs, in bodies that are immortal and imperishable. And those who are left alive when Jesus comes back, well, those people will be instantaneously changed and transformed and also clothed with the imperishable and immortality so that we all will be changed and transformed. But make no mistake about it. When this happens, this transformation, the bodies will be our bodies, these bodies. These bodies are the ones that are going to be transformed. As surely as that caterpillar becomes that butterfly, it's not a different one. As amazing as it is, that's the same insect, but amazingly transformed. But, but that butterfly was once encased in that. So it'll be with our transformed bodies. It will be these bodies. The graves, the tombs will be empty as surely as 
Jesus' tomb on the first Easter was empty because the same body that was laid there dead was the body that was raised again, transformed, and glorious. Now, Paul doesn't answer all of our questions, again, about the nature of these resurrection bodies. For instance, you ever wonder how old you'll be in the resurrection body? What your age will be? I mean, do you get like a five-year-old body? 20-year-old body? 80-year-old body? Or has age just become irrelevant in eternity? That the way we experience age now, under the curse of sin, well, not even, is not at all transferable to glory. He doesn't answer that question. He doesn't, he doesn't answer questions about what will our bodies be able to do when they're transformed that they can't do now, if anything. I don't know. He doesn't say. I mean, it's pretty incredible what a butterfly can do when it's not a caterpillar. <laughs> it is, it's quite amazing. This is woven into the fabric of something that happens in creation all the time. It's an incredible transformation that takes place. Will we be able to do things in our glorified bodies that we can't do now? I don't know. Paul doesn't elaborate on that. Uh, will we recognize each other in the resurrection? Paul doesn't say that either. I, I, I think it's... I think the strong implication is we will recognize one another. That those that we knew on earth, we will also recognize in the resurrection. And we'll have a whole bunch more people to meet as well. But I think there'll be recognition, but Paul doesn't elaborate on that. So we have questions. But here's what Paul makes crystal clear in the passage. He makes Easter's promise crystal clear. And it's simply this. That the perishable will put on the imperishable. And that the mortal will will put on immortality. That's the truth of what's going to happen. That's what Paul makes clear. And at that time, when that happens, Paul says that the saying in Isaiah chapter 25 will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he quotes from Hosea chapter 13, and he addresses death directly in this passage. He talks to death directly. He personifies death sees it as having a sting, as, as like a, a snake with a venomous bite or a scorpion. And he speaks directly to death and this sting. And, and, you know, it's true that death has a sting, right? It does sting. It severs earthly relationships and it's painful. It severs body from soul in a way that we're not designed to be by God. He's made us to be embodied creatures. And death destroys that. It's an enemy. There's a sting. But listen to what Paul says in verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Who talks that way to death? I mean, given, given how powerful and inescapable death seems, who would say such a thing directly to death? Only the one who knows what Jesus has done. It's the only person that can talk that way. Only someone who knows what Jesus has done. And notice what Paul says in verse 57. He goes on to say, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of the victory song. Acknowledging that our victory comes through what Jesus has done. We don't have a victory song. Apart from acknowledging what Jesus has done and our victory in him. Well, what is it Jesus has done? Well, notice Paul also says, before he says that, that the sting of death is sin. Meaning that without sin, if there were no rebellion, no transgression against God and his law, there would be no death. 
Death has entered into this created order as an intruder, as an enemy because of sin. We live in perishable and mortal bodies, not because that was God's original intent and design. It's a result of sin and rebellion. That's why we're mortal. That's why we're perishable. That's why we die. But the good news is Jesus has taken the sting of sin and death because sin was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed there. Because what Jesus did on the cross was he absorbed the sting of death by taking our sin and paying for it. That's what Bob so wonderfully talked about in the Good Friday service if you were here. And so here's what Jesus has done. He's conquered sin by dying for it, which are the wages of sin. Death is the wages of sin. He's taken away sin by dying for it, and he's conquered death by his resurrection. And that's why we have our victory. He's absorbed that sting. So like a bee flying around with no stinger, that's like death now. It can't ultimately harm us because of what Jesus has done. So as big as this predicament seems, God's Easter promise is bigger. That, that, that's, the, that's the gospel proclamation. That as irreversible as this predicament seems to be, God is bigger. He reverses the irreversible. And that also means this for you. Whatever else you're struggling with right now, whatever other trouble you have in addition to the fact that you're perishing and mortal, whatever other problems you have, God's bigger than those two. He's able to reverse the irreversible. He's a God of hope. He can bring good out of pain. He can bring good out of evil right now, right here. And perhaps you're, perhaps you're not a Christian. Perhaps you don't know what to think about all this resurrection stuff and you doubt it and find it hard to believe. You just outright don't believe it. But I suspect that even if that's the case, you want the hope of reversal in your life. You want the hope of reversal in your own self, change and transformation. You want the hope of reversal in your circumstances and you want the hope of eternal life in the face of death because you sense that you're not made for this. You're not made for this breakdown and decay and deterioration. There's something wrong with it. It is an enemy and you feel it and you want deliverance. Again, the good news is this. You can know the reality of Easter's promise this morning. And it's quite simple. If you want to know it, confess that you're a sinner in need of God's grace. Turn from that sin, repent of that sin, and look to Jesus alone to save you. Look to Jesus as your hope for victory and surrender your heart and your life to him. And if you do that, you'll know this victory song. That's it. The victory song of 1 Corinthians 15 will be yours. Because friends, here's the amazing thing. The clothes are free. The water is free. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus.
Now, if you embrace Easter's promise, it will make a difference in the way that you live. It must make a difference in the way that you live. Because not only do we have Easter's promise for the future, we have Easter's power for the present. And that's how I want to conclude. Easter's power. Paul says in verse 58, Therefore, in other words, in light of everything that Paul has said, not only in these verses, but in the entire chapter, in light of the fact that Jesus has been risen from the dead and we have our victory in him, in light of that, here's the payoff. Here's the implications. Here's the difference it makes. Therefore, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's the implication. What Paul is saying is the hope of the resurrection allows you to stand firm and steadfast in the midst of a collapsing world and in the midst of a collapsing body with hope. The hope of the resurrection allows you to be immovable in a changing world and allows you and empowers you to always be abounding in the work of the Lord because in light of the resurrection, you know that your life is not meaningless. Your life matters. What you do matters, not just for a brief 70 or 80 years maximum, but what you do matters for eternity because nothing is worthless or lost, or in vain, or pointless that's done for the Lord and in the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. So here's the question for you. Are you abounding in the work of the Lord? Are you giving yourselves to the things of God's kingdom? And that doesn't mean just being involved in church activities or church programs. It doesn't exclude that, but it's, it's broader than that. It means living your life in all areas to the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. It means your work is about that. It means your leisure, sports are about that. It means your studies and academic work is about that. It means your home life, your parenting, your marriages are about that, the glory of God and his kingdom. Are you going to abound in the work of the Lord? Or are you going to be consumed with your own ambitions, to build your own kingdoms for your own glory. You only have one life. One life, and that soon will be passed. And only what is done for Jesus will last. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And do you live like you believe it? Well, even if we believe it, how do we find the strength and endurance to always be abounding in the work of the Lord? Always abounding. Whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're energized, whether you're fatigued, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Where do we find strength for that? It's not easy. But let me suggest this. Part of it, part of what energizes us and empowers us to keep that up with endurance and perseverance is remembering who you are. Remembering who we are as Christians. In other words, abounding in the work of the Lord is not just about doing. It's about being, understanding who you are as Christians. Let me, let me describe it like this. The resurrection of Jesus is best understood as an end-time event. I know it happened 2,000 years ago. But the resurrection of Jesus is best understood as an end-time event. Resurrection of the body really belongs to the end times. There's only one resurrection that will take place before the end, and that's 
Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection has kind of intruded into the center of history. It's happened in the middle. But it belongs to the end time. What happened with Jesus' body is going to happen to all the bodies at the end time. But not only that, when Jesus rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he poured the Spirit out at Pentecost, that's also an end time event. I mean, just read the prophecy of Joel, who anticipates Pentecost. He sees this as an end time event. But Pentecost, like the resurrection of Christ, has broken into history kind of ahead of time, if you're with me. It happens kind of ahead of time. So the spirit that is poured out is the spirit of the age to come. But it's not only broken into history, that spirit has broken into our hearts. And you know what that means? That means we're people who don't belong to this age anymore. That means that we're a future people. We already have the first fruits of the life to come in the Spirit who's taken us, who were dead in trespasses and sins, and because God is rich in mercy, He's raised us up with Christ and seated us with, with Him in the heavenly realms. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians. That's now language. We're people of the age to come now by the Spirit in our hearts. We've already experienced a spiritual resurrection from death. You're people of the future. And that's to be reflected in the way that we live, individually and corporately. People ought to observe in our life something of the glory to come. Philip Yancey writes this, After the resurrection of Jesus, human history becomes the contradiction. In other words, what he means is all this decay, all this breakdown, that's not ultimate reality anymore after the resurrection. The resurrection, Easter is a preview of ultimate reality. That's the age to come. That's the lasting age. And so if you want to think about, okay, how do we fit into this? And how does, how does Easter give me power for the present? Well, think about it like this. Because of the spirit that lives in you, we're to be living trailers previewing the life of the age to come. You know what I mean by a living trailer? A movie trailer. A preview of a movie that tells you something about what the movie's going to be, what it looks like, what's going to happen. People ought to be able to look at our lives and see a preview of that. And we ought to live as walking billboards advertising the glory of the age to come by the power of the Spirit already dwelling within us who's a spirit of the age to come. And this is is why our self-righteousness, our pettiness, our arrogance... Our pride, our bitterness, our envy, our inability to get along, our gracelessness, our lovelessness. That's why these things are so serious. It's not only because the world finds these things repugnant and inconsistent with our profession, and that's true. It's one of the reasons it's serious. But in addition to that, these things contradict who we really are, and they distort the preview of the glory of the age to come. So as these things are present in our lives, we need to repent of these things as well. Because instead, we have a victory song. We have a victory song for the world not only to hear, but we have a victory song for the world to see in our lives. Benjamin Franklin seemed to know this song as a young man. He wrote this epitaph, uh, though it's not actually used on his gravestone. He wrote this as a young man, and by his own instructions, it's not on his gravestone. 
So I don't know that Benjamin Franklin believed this as he got older, but listen to what he wrote as a young man, as an epitaph. The body of B. Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved by the author. That's a victory song. And I guess if he's not going to use it, I'm going to use it. Like I said, I don't know if Benjamin Franklin believed this when he died. There's evidence that he didn't, that he wasn't steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord as he got older. But you know, that's not an urgent question for us today, is it? Whether Benjamin Franklin believed this when he died. The urgent question is whether I believe it and whether you believe it and whether you're finding your hope and life and victory in the person and work of Jesus. That's the question. And if we are, let us sing our victory song, not only with our mouths, but with our lives. As we sing, praise be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you observed our predicament and that you acted in mercy to send your Son to atone for our sins, risen from the dead, to give us the Easter promise that as we look to him by faith, we too can have confidence of a resurrected life. And Father, we pray that you would grant to us a full measure of your Spirit, that we might live for your glory and that we might indeed live as living trailers and walking billboards, declaring and reflecting your goodness, holiness, and love. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.